Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, a new variant of COVID-19 continues to rapidly spread. Georgia voters go to the polls in two key Senate races. And President Trump's attempt to overturn the election continues tomorrow. Good evening in New York. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find our latest news at independent.org. In the news today, the new variant of the COVID-19 virus continues to spread around the world and here in the United States. The new variant, which is believed to be 50 to 70 percent more transmissible than the current dominant strain, was first detected last month in southern England, is now spread to more than 30 countries worldwide. Since yesterday, governments of both England and Scotland announced a return to full national lockdowns to try and slow the spread of the new strain. This is Scotland's first minister, Nicola Sturgeon. Decided to introduce from midnight tonight for the duration of January a legal requirement to stay at home except for essential purposes. This is similar to the lockdown of March. On Monday, the new strain of the virus was detected for the first time in New York State. It was found in a 67-year-old jeweler from Saratoga Springs. He had not traveled outside the country. This suggests the new variant is already spreading widely. Growing concerns about the new variant come as the rollout of the new vaccines remain sluggish across New York State, including here in New York City, where only roughly one-fourth of the doses have been distributed. This is occurring under strict rules dictated by Governor Andrew Cuomo. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio is urging Cuomo to loosen up the rules so more people can begin receiving the vaccine. I want in the month of January, in the next few weeks, I want to see us start to vaccinate educators and school staff. I want to see us vaccinate first responders of all kinds, cops, firefighters across the spectrum. We're focused right now on our healthcare heroes. We're focused on nursing homes. But during the month of January, we need to expand those categories. We need to reach many more people. This afternoon in Kenosha, a Wisconsin prosecutor announced that he will not file criminal charges against a white police officer who shot Jacob Blake, a black man, in the back in Kenosha last August, leaving him paralyzed and setting off massive protests in that city. In Georgia, final the final elections of the Trump era are underway. Two U.S. Senate seats currently held by Republicans Kelly Leffler and David Perdue are up for grabs in a runoff vote that will determine which party will control the Senate for the next two years. Going into today, polls show Democratic challengers, Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, both holding narrow leads. This is Warnock speaking last night. The wealthy and the well-connected have no shortage of representation in Washington. It's time for ordinary people. Folk who go to work every day. Folk who would love to go to work, but they've lost their jobs due to no fault of their own. It's time for ordinary folk to have representation in, representation in Washington. And if you send me to the Senate every single day, I'll have Georgia on my mind. I won't be- Warnock serves as the pastor of Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church, the spiritual home of Martin Luther King Jr. If elected... 
Warnock would be the first black U.S. senator in Georgia's 232-year history. Meanwhile, Trump campaigned last night in Dalton, Georgia, for Leffler and Purdue, but he mostly made it about himself. You know, I've had two elections. I won both of them. It's amazing. And, and I actually did much better on the second one. It's great to be back in this incredible state, the home of hardworking patriots who believe in God, family, and country. Tomorrow, each of you is going to vote in one of the most important runoff elections. Polls close in Georgia at 7 p.m. That will be followed by two hours of special coverage of the results of the Georgia Senate races here on 99.5 FM tonight from 8 to 10 p.m. The, the, the special will be Georgia on Our Minds, hosted by Arthur Schwartz. Again, that's 8 to, t- 8 to 10 p.m. here on WBEI. Tomorrow, Trump's insistence that he won November's election will be put to the test once more. That's when Congress meets to certify the results of the Electoral College, which gave Democrat Joe Biden a decisive 306 to 232 victory over Trump. Trump's legal challenges to the results in six key swing states uh, have been repeatedly rejected over the past two months by more, a total of more than 60 judges, many appointed by Trump. Nonetheless, a dozen Republican senators and more than 140 Republican representatives are expected to contest the electoral votes from those states and drag out the proceedings. The far-right Proud Boys are also flocking to Washington, D.C. at Trump's behest, with many spoiling for a fight. What I hope for is Trump wins... The lefties lose their minds, and it gave me a reason to finally go out there and test some of the new firepower I've acquired in the last couple of years. That was Proud Boy admirer Ralph uh, Pena. Meanwhile, Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser and Police Chief Robert Conti insist they will keep things from spiraling out of control tomorrow. We have received some information that uh, there are individuals intent on bringing firearms into our city, and that just will not be tolerated. We are urging uh, D.C. residents, people from around the region, to avoid the downtown area and especially avoid people who are coming here to look for confrontations, particularly physical confrontations. Uh, Under uh, the mayor's direction, we have reached out to uh, the D.C. National Guard, And we have received confirmation uh, that the D.C. National Guard will be assisting uh, the Metropolitan Police Department. And finally, here in New York, supporters of WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange are celebrating yesterday's ruling that denied U.S. efforts to have him extradited to face espionage charges. Still, they say there is much work to be done. This is Chuck Slotkin of NYC Free Julian Assange. We'll have to wait and see what happens if they grant uh, him bail and he gets out. And it's also a question of where he'll be able to go and settle if they keep him imprisoned uh, using the excuse of giving time for the U.S. to appeal or holding him through the appeal. The appeal could take two years. So we definitely uh, don't... uh, Consider our work finished. If anyone wants to, uh, you know, work with us, they can uh, contact us at nycfreeassange.org uh, because uh, we came together to get uh, freedom and no extradition for Julian Assange. Until that's accomplished, uh, our, our work will continue.
When we come back from this short break, we'll talk with the Independence Longtime Housing Correspondent Stephen Wishnia about evictions, evictions moratoriums, and the struggle for housing justice for millions of people during this pandemic. Dear Landlord by Bob Dylan, performed by Daniel Brillo. And you're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York City. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York's progressive newspaper and website. You can find our latest news at independent.org. Our December-January holiday double issue hit the streets of New York a couple of weeks ago, and one of the major pieces we ran was a look at the burgeoning anti-eviction movement here in New York and across the country. The article is called Hurricane Warning from New York to California. Millions of tenants nationwide face a looming wave of evictions. Piece is by our longtime housing correspondent, Stephen Wishnia. Thank you for joining us this evening, Steve. How are you? Hi, John. How are you doing? Good. Always great to have you with us. Uh, before we talk about your article, which came out just before Christmas, uh, can you fill us in about the recently extended eviction moratorium here in New York State that was passed by the state legislature just before New Year's? How long is it, and what does it do and not do? I, I, it's called the 
uh, COVID-19 Emergency Eviction and Foreclosure Prevention Act of 2020. It was passed by both houses of legislature on the 28th of December and signed that night by Governor Cuomo. And basically it extends the moratorium on evictions for four months until May 1st. And it does uh, toughen it up a bit instead of people having to prove the previous law that was in effect exempted people from eviction if they could prove they'd lost income from the pandemic, which for a lot of people, such as freelancers or you know undocumented people who work off the books, was difficult. It was a lot of hoops to jump through. This one just allows people to file a form saying that they've lost income, they're suffering hardship, and it's under penalty of perjury, but the burden of proof is on the state. It's not on the tenant. So that's the main thing it does. Uh, it also exempts uh, people 65 or older or who have a health condition that would be worsened by having to move or who would be more at risk of getting COVID. And it also has a moratorium on foreclosures for uh, tax lien sales for small landlords, people who own, I think, less than 10 units. Uh, also, uh, it's not just for non-payment evictions. It's also for holdover proceedings, which is when the landlord wants you out for another reason. It does not exempt people who are being evicted for creating a nuisance, but it does exempt, say, people in unregulated apartments whose lease ran out. Uh, what it does not do, mm-hmm. it's cancel rent. So people are still going to be, you know, pilot if they, they're not working or they're working for lower, less money than they were making, they're still going to have back rent piling up. And that's what, you know, people are talking about in terms of the hurricane that's going to hit or the tsunami or whatever is that you've got people with a year's worth of back rent you know, sooner or later, there's going to be a reckoning they can't pay. Uh, and that's why there's pressure from the you know, tenant movement and bills pending in Albany to, you know, cancel rent due, you know, that's been accrued during the epidemic. I, I take it that uh, Governor Cuomo has not endorsed that so far. Uh, no, he hasn't. Although that, you know, may be one of the things that you know, Democrats having a two-thirds majority in the state Senate might make a difference in, although it's a little odd, you know, before the 2018 elections, the state Senate was primarily the problem, you know, when it came to trying to pass stronger rent regulation laws, the state Senate was the problem because it either had a Republican majority or you had the independent Democratic conference and the assembly routinely passed really strong tenant bills that went nowhere in the assembly and that went nowhere in the Senate. And, you know, once the Democrats and now it's been reversed, Senate, uh, all of a sudden the assembly was the one that was going slow, going slower. Right. It seems like a, a game of uh, bait and switch. Um, so with the, the bigger picture nationwide, which you examine in your article, a uh, federal eviction moratorium was recently extended to the end of January as a part of that big stimulus package that passed Congress also at the end of December. 
Um, but if that federal moratorium is not extended again before the end of this month, especially at a time when this uh, new variant of COVID-19 is spread, spreading widely, what kind of eviction crisis could we be looking at here in the United States? A uh, pretty bad one. I mean, keep extending it, but, you know, for short periods. And like I said, sooner or later, you, you know, people are piling up back rent because they don't have the income to cover it. You know, sooner or later, you know, either going to have to pay it or get kicked out or something is going to have to be done to change that. Right. And for your article, you spoke with tenant organizers in New York City, Rochester, New York, Boston, Chicago, St. Louis, Kansas City, Dallas, Los Angeles, and Oakland. Uh, and what was your takeaway from these various conversations? And do you sense there's uh, more militancy among tenant groups uh, as this crisis drags on? Uh, I mean, yes. I mean, I think the more important thing is just that there's organizing in places where there really wasn't before, uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago, uh, you know, there was organized tenants maybe in Boston, New York, northern New Jersey, yeah, New York and the suburbs, including Westchester, northern New Jersey, Nassau, uh, San Francisco and the Bay Area, L.A., but not much in the rest of the country or upstate. You know, now there's organizing in Rochester, Albany. That's one of the reasons why we were able to get, you know, stronger rent control laws in the state in 2019 is because there was organizing upstate. So it wasn't just a New York City issue. It was a statewide issue because, you know, gentrification is coming to places like Rochester and, you know, with no protections, you know, people are getting evicted right and left. Um, And, you know, housing costs are becoming an issue you know, nationwide, uh, you know, and that, I mean, Kansas City, there is a, one of the things people organizing about this thing I wrote about where people, uh, the landlord decided to, you know, kick everybody out of the building so he could renovate. And when people asked for uh, the last two months rent free, because he only gave them two months notice, he told, texted them back, LOL. And he said, you know, the law only requires, I think it's 33 day notices. I gave you 60. You know, what are you complaining about? It only would, the renovation only would have raised the rent from like, you know, 600 to 720. But if you're in a state where the minimum wage is 850, you know, that's a lot of money. So just housing costs have gone up, you know, way faster than wages all over the country. So it's becoming a big issue all over the country. And that's why you have organizing in places like Texas, you know, Chicago, Philadelphia. Right. Um, you know, not just in, you know, the big eastern cities. Right. And, and I mean, one of the things that amazed me when I read that article, I mean, you, you noted that in Texas, uh, people can be evicted with as little as 24 hours notice. Uh, so you certainly see reasons for why there would be a, a increase in, in this kind of uh, organizing. Uh, we, we're going to have to wrap it up in a minute. But uh, for listeners who may be facing eviction, who may have gotten an eviction notice, uh, what information can you share with them in terms of uh what they should do and in, in the hotline number that the Metro, Metropolitan Council on Housing provides. 
Uh, Med Council on Housing's hotline number is 212-979-0611. Uh, and they're open Monday, Wednesday, Friday, afternoons and evenings. I'm not, I don't exam, remember exactly what, uh, if they're open any other times, but that's 212-979-0611. Uh, housing Court Answers is also good and they provide advice on what you're doing, you know, how to handle housing court. Uh, you do have to respond to an eviction notice. Uh, don't get scared off. It's just a message that your landlord is taking you to court. It doesn't mean you have to move out, but you do have to respond to it. And you can call Met Council or Housing Court Answers, you know, to find out, you know, how to respond to it, you know, under the circumstances of the epidemic. But, you know, don't get scared off. It's a bark. But if you don't respond to it, it automatically turns into a bite. So and the other thing is that New York City has a recently enacted right to counsel program for people in housing court, and that's been expanded because of the epidemic, too. So you do have a right to a lawyer. Okay, that's really important to know. And that uh, URL for the housing court answers is housingcourtanswers.org. Stephen Wishnia, Independence Longtime Housing Correspondent, thank you for joining us this evening on 99.5 FM. All right, thanks a lot, John. Okay. Yeah. And you're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI New York. Coming up, a member of an all-women tech collective will join us. She helped to create a useful new tool for would-be renters that unscrupulous landlords won't be happy about. This is a public
Know Your Rights by The Clash. You're listening to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Before we continue with our second segment, I want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this on the air. You can give by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to give2wbai.org. Or you can send a ta- uh, send in a tax-deductible contribution via check to WBAI slash Pacifica and send make it out to WBAI slash Pacifica and send it to WBAI at 388 Atlantic Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 11217. All right. So uh, w- as we uh, move on here, th- this is the Independent News Hour on WBAI New York. I'm your host, John Tarleton. So in our second segment, we're going to uh, talk some more about housing, this time uh, about a, a, a neat uh, use of uh, technology that a group called Unlock NYC, an all-women uh, tech collective, has developed in collaboration with uh, tenant activists here in the city. Joining us to talk about this development is Mano Vergerio. She's a member of Unlock NYC. Mano, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's great to be here. Sure thing. So but before we talk about this uh, uh, this new tool that you all have developed to help uh, people uh, using rental vouchers get housing, can you uh, say a little bit about the Unlock NYC uh, collective that you're a part of? For sure. So we're a team of four women. Uh, we met during the summer of 2019 at Blue Ridge Labs, which is a social impact incubator based in Brooklyn that brings together technologists, designers, and community members um, to design and imagine new solutions that better the lives of New Yorkers. So that's where we met. We have diverse backgrounds. Some of us have worked as tenant organizers, as political organizers, as designers or even have lived experience of um, housing discrimination in New York City. And uh, we've been working together for a year and a half now. I see. And can you uh, describe this uh, chat bot that uh, you all created and why it could turn out to be a very uh, useful tool for people who uh, often face uh, discrimination when they seek housing uh, with rental vouchers from the government? For sure. So it's a chatbot that you can access through our website um, on any device like a smartphone or a computer. You don't need to download anything. You can just go to our website, which is weunlock.nyc. And the chatbot really walks you step by step through the process of identifying and reporting um, discrimination with regards to um, New Yorkers who use a government, some form of government assistance, like a housing voucher to pay for rent. Um, and we really co-designed this tool with New Yorkers who had been directly impacted by discrimination so that it would be informed by what people actually want, um, need to know and want to be hearing as they work through these issues. It's pretty straightforward. It basically allows you to do two things at the moment. Um, for example, if the user has evidence that they were discriminated against in their housing search, they can send their reports to the New York City Commission on Human Rights, which is the city agency that's responsible for enforcing um, these anti-discrimination laws that protect New Yorkers 
from source of income discrimination, which is this type of discrimination that is very prevalent in New York City, um, by which New York, by which landlords um, deny prospective tenants simply because they use government assistance to pay for their rent. Um, so if somebody, you know, comes to our chatbot, they have some evidence that they were discriminated against, the chatbot walks them through the process of compiling a report and can send it to the New York City Commission on Human Rights um, on their behalf. So it basically it, allows you to file a complaint with the city government uh, straight from your phone. Exactly. And the second part of it is that if you don't have evidence or if you don't feel like, you know, taking a formal legal action, you can also leave an anonymous tip. Um, and the reason why we do this is that today there's very little information about how and why this discrimination is happening and who is perpetrating it. So we're really trying to start building a body of data to better understand this issue because it's really hard to fight back against it and to hold bad actors accountable if we don't really understand how it's happening. Right. And, and uh, can you talk a little bit more about the collaboration that occurred uh, that uh, produced this uh, chatbot? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So absolutely. From the beginning, this really came out of many, many conversations we had in our very first um, days together when we were doing research. um, And we talked to so many New Yorkers who had faced discrimination throughout their housing search simply because they used a voucher to pay for rent. So, for example, what that might look like is that if you're a prospective tenant, you call up a listing, you're like, hey, I'm interested in viewing this apartment as soon as the broker would hear that they um, had a voucher or some sort of government assistance to pay for rent, the tenant would be turned down. Like the broker would find a way to get them off the phone. They would say, oh no, you know, this unit is no longer available or straight up say something like the landlord doesn't accept vouchers. And that's actually totally illegal. Um, There's laws both at the city and the state level that protect New Yorkers from doing that. So the app really came out of those initial conversations. And then over the last year and a half, we've been collaborating with many New Yorkers who've had firsthand experience of source of income discrimination, as well as organizations who've been working around these issues for much longer than we have. Um, We definitely didn't want to come in being like, hey, you know, we're we're brand new. We have all the answers. We're going to solve this problem. We know that there's many um, people and organizations in New York who have been doing this work for a lot longer than we have. Uh, So we really wanted to embed ourselves in that ecosystem and learn about the work that was already being done and support it and not, you know, be redundant or reinvent the wheel. Um, One really critical community partner for us has been Neighbors Together. It's a community-based organization in Bed-Stuy that has been working and organizing their members around source of income discrimination for several years. Before the pandemic, they were hosting amazing um, in-person housing workshops that people could come to. They could learn about their rights. They could learn how to report source of income discrimination. So we also sat in on a lot of these workshops to understand how um, this was being done at the time. And our goal with the chatbot was to really bring the magic of those workshops, of that really encouraging in-person um, support that was happening in person and allow people to have it at their fingertips on the go anywhere they, you know, anywhere they are in the city. Well, it's a, it's a really, uh, really useful uh, tool you've come up with. Uh, we're going to have to leave here in a moment, but before we do, uh, can you uh, tell listeners again uh, where they can find out more information about Unlock NYC? Absolutely. Um, so you can go to our website, which is www.weunlock.com. 
Um, and you can access all our information. You can access our tool directly through there. If you're a New Yorker who has a voucher or, you know, any sort of rental assistance program like CityFeb, Section 8, HASA, SODA, please come to our website. Um, we'd love for you to try out our tool. You can also find us on social media, Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is at WeUnlockNYC. Okay, Mano Vergerio, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI. Thank you so much, John, for having me. It was great to be here. You bet. Alrighty, for people who want to find out more about this, you can also go to independent.org where we have a article by Rico Cleffy uh, currently on the front page that describes the work of Unlock NYC and Mano and, and the tenant groups as well. Alrighty, when we come back after this short break, we'll be talking about defund the police with a former city council staffer who is now running for city council himself and uh, has a lot, a lot of interesting ideas about how we could uh, really uh, transform the police department if we get a, a solid block of progressive uh, candidates in office this coming year. Imagine going to court with no trial. Lifestyle crews of blue Bahama waters. No welfare supporters. More conscious of the way we raise our daughters. Days are shorter. Nights are colder. Feeling like life is over. These snakes strike like a cobra. The world's hot. My son got knocked. Evidently, it's elementary. They want us all gone eventually. Trooping out of state for a plate. Knowledge. If coke was cooked without the garbage, we'd all have the top dollars. Imagine everybody flashing. Fashion designer clothes. Lacing your click up with diamond rolls. Your people holding dough. No parole. No rubbers. Going raw, imagine law with no undercovers. Just some thoughts for the mind. I take a glimpse into time, watch the blimp read, the world is mine. It's I rule the world. Imagine that. That was the 1996 hip hop single by Nas featuring Lauren Hill of the Fugees. I'm John Tarleton, your guest, uh, your host here on the Independent News Hour. And uh, we now turn to our third segment. Uh, we're going we're gonna to be joined by Brandon West. Uh, Brandon is uh, a member of the DSA for the city uh, slate that is, is six candidates running for city council this year. Uh, and he's running in Brooklyn's 39th district. Uh, Brandon was previously, previously worked uh, at city council as a staffer and really saw sort of how the machinery of government works and this uh this spring he was in the streets with so many other people uh, helping lead a black lives matter protest that uh, urged and demanded that city council uh, start really dramatically reducing funding for the new york police department of course uh, those demands were rejected by the current city council but there are now 36 open seats that will be up for grabs in the upcoming city elections in 2021 and uh, so a lot, there's a lot of uh, potential here for, for transformative change to come to city council, depending on how those elections go. Brandon, thank you for joining us on the Independent News Hour tonight on WBAI. Thank you. No, I really appreciate it. I love you guys. You bet. Uh, so before we, we talk about uh, defund the police and some of your ideas around that, uh, can you say a little bit more about yourself and, and your background that uh, you bring, especially from having previously worked at the city council. 
Yeah, totally. So I, my background, I guess, all started, my I, my career has been more in voting rights organizing. So I work in the Center for Popular Democracy. So what I do is essentially help black and brown grassroots groups build around democracy issues. You know, and I often say that like, uh, Flint, Michigan is a democracy issue. I think it's a very broad understanding of how to build power for folks. Um, but I had a stint working government. So it was post-recession and I ended up um, at office management and budget for uh, a few years um, and saw the budget from the inside and then spent a little bit of time at city council finance. Um, so I kind of had a little bit of experience doing advocacy work, which is like kind of my, my core interest and then doing like budget work. And then, you know, uh, I guess when I was doing the bureaucratic side of things, I needed like an outlet. So I started doing a lot more organizing outside. So that kind of was starting to do more within DSA, uh, the central Brooklyn branch, and then um, doing more anti-machine work. And that kind of created this larger picture of like how machine, like the machine works and how government's opaque and how all the important decisions people don't have access to are at the table. And that kind of like built this understanding that as I kind of got more and more radicalized by seeing how things don't work, that I like decided to like, you know what, I'm going to jump into electoral politics and, you know, try and change this. So that's sort of like my, my arc in terms of how I got involved. Right. And, and you're running as a, a part of a, a six person uh, slate uh, with the democratic socialists of America chapter here in New York. And of course there's dozens of other uh, progressive and left-wing candidates also running for city council with these 36 uh, vacant seats out of the 51 seats on city council. And of course the uh, mayor's uh, seat is also open this year. Uh, if you and other socialists and leftists uh, make it to city council and, and have a substantial caucus on that city council that will take office on January 1, 2022, how would you uh, go about starting to de- defund the police and, and, build an, and building an alternative to policing here in New York City? Totally. So there's like a couple tools that city council has, but like they have to be like incredibly specific about how to get these things accomplished. So the big part is, is um, there's a couple different things. There's like three, in terms of defunding the police, I think there's three avenues. There's the um, hearing model. So because, you know, council, you help pick the speaker, but then you also get uh, the speaker chooses who gets uh, runs which committees. So, you know, when you run a committee, you can, you know, especially if you have a committee that has like a community safety organization and you know, like uh, corrections or NRPD, you can like do hearings on whatever you want to do hearing on and then try and build policy around that. So there's using that as a bully pulpit. Two, which I think is the biggest one, is the budgeting process um, because city council uh, works with the mayor, with speaker and the mayor's office in terms of like deciding what's in the budget. And you can sort of like try to build the alternative to policing by like figuring out what programs you want to fund and, and also take money out of things that we don't want to spend it on in order to do that. And I think that's the, the biggest tool. And then the other tool, which is a little trickier, is like trying to pass legislation for accountability measures. So we could, in New York City, pass a rule be like no facial recognition. So that kind of zeroes out any idea that the, you know, um, you know, using that data, like the NYPD, in like trying to undermine that, the carceral frame by using a piece of legislation to limit their ability. But there's also so many ways that they can undermine that, um, because that was CCRB. CCRB was like a council proposed legislation that eventually got undermined to the point that it's really not really useful at all. So like those are, I think, the three different tools. But I think the budget's the biggest one because we can just explicitly say, like, hey, we want a program that's, um, you know, that does right. X, Y, and Z, and then we can fund it. And speaking of that budget, what do you see as some of the juicy pieces of fat on that NYPD budget that could be uh, 
quickly chopped? And also, what are some examples of pilot programs that you would like to see funding for to to get underway and, and see if you can get some positive results from? Totally. So the police budget is it's huge. You know, there's the capital portion, but like the expense portion is like really the big part. So it's like it's six billion, or at least the one we just passed is six billion, but that doesn't include all the like fringe benefits that, you know, all the other because pretty much uh, the salary of one police officer is usually doubled when you when you count all the other things that includes to hiring that person. So in terms of what we can cut, I mean, there's like, you know, we have helicopters, we have all this military equipment that we can cut. There's also programs like the homeless outreach program, like that is not something we should be doing in terms of like having the, the presence of beat cops and like the actual headcount, you know, we keep hiring new classes. And, you know, I think there's a case that we don't need those cl- new classes to be hired, especially since crime has been going down. Uh, even in the context of the pandemic and the like the uptick, you know, I think that's more of a macroeconomic issue, you know? So, you know, I think that those are like really specific things. I know the community United for police reform did a report and they, they lined out $2.5 billion that were relatively low lifts that it could be cut from the budget. And I think a lot of that is really just like programs where we don't need a policing model to kind of solve, including especially school safety officers. Um, and I think in terms of the like, um, you know, piloting, like things that we can do, there was a really great um, pilot that just happened in Brownsville recently where they, I think for like a two, I think it was a four, two block radius. Um, they just essentially took the cops off the, off that radius. They had um, stands and had essentially information for like, if you were in public housing or you needed like work or like SBS, they essentially had city resources available and they had community folks in that community essentially trying to do community safety in person there. And there was like no police 911 calls over the, the four day pilot. So I think, that's like an example of like the kinds of things that we could try and put money to. Mm. Now, one of the the groups that uh, is so deeply entrenched in its opposition to any change at the police department are, are the police unions. There's five police unions, the largest of which is the Police Benevolent Association, which represents about 24,000 uh, beat cops. Uh, what do you see as the source of the power of these police unions? Is it just their money and numbers or, or is there like a, it's almost like a sort of a social hegemony they wield over uh, the imagination of many people who, who see them as indispensable for their own personal safety? I mean, I think it's both really, you know, I think they do have like members and numbers and when they do mobilize, they are very, very effective at mobilizing. You know, I think um, we've seen like a, a small group of folks who, know how to like or organize on electoral gains or on specific issues are successful politically in New York city, you know, um, you know, because like the, you know, the amount of votes it takes to like win an election and the amount of like sway to change something is not insurmountable. So they are a effective on that, but B they're also building off of this, like, you know, long, long narrative of like conservatism and that the idea of like, you know, to be safe, we need more police and like keep people in control. And it's all built off of like, you know, anti-black racism and, you know, white supremacy and like that. So they're tapping into something that's very powerful already. And I think that they're really utilizing that. So they're really making, they're the, they're the arbiters of the argument um, of all these, these structures, you know, for, for generations. And so they're like building, so whenever they, they need to like mobilize on something, they want to keep themselves in power. They can just tap that really easily using like fear and just connecting to conservatism writ large in New York city, which is, you know, an ideology that exists here, you know, we're a left city, but people believe in this stuff because of a lot of reasons. So I think they use both to their advantage. Mm. And, and if, if there is a, a socialist uh, caucus on city council next year, if, if you and 
some of the others on the DSA for the city slate uh, win office uh, uh, in these elections. Uh, how will you all function and how will you all maximize your effectiveness? Well, I mean, I think this is an incredibly unique situation. This, there won't be um, a situation where there's going to be 36 open seats um, again, you know, and a mayor and a speaker. So essentially trying to create a very defined, clear message about what we want to change and how we're going to do it is, I think, critical. And I think that the, what the social slate can do is very much be the forefront of trying to create that narrative and make the case for uh, really broader changes to the things we want to do, rather than like incrementalism that we've been doing before, um, which is like very safe because people don't want to spend political capital to like, you know, put themselves on, you know, uh, out there. And I think we have to kind of create the cover for everyone else. And I think that's also deciding like what are the priorities, and how we talk about it. You know, um, I think people are trying to already pushing away from even using the words defund. Um, and I think that, you know, we need to be able to push because they've done polling that like 50% of New Yorkers, New York, people in New York City support the idea of defunding the police, you know, and that's using that language, you know. So like, I think that, um, you know, really the slate is going to need to be the vanguard in a lot of ways of trying to like talk about it just so that we can take up the, you know, the conversation and then be able to direct it uh, because so much has changed so quickly that I think a lot of this is about like how we talk about these issues and how we frame them when we start to build coalitions around the work. Right. And, and what is it like uh, running as, as a slate with five other uh, candidates along with yourself? Uh, is the whole greater than the sum of the parts? Totally. I think so. I mean, we're, you know, people think that, you know, if you haven't been in a campaign and you, you look at them, you think, wow, they're so slick. They must have like known everything and they come in and it's super easy and they blow everything out of the water and it's done. You know, a lot of it's new for a lot of folks, you know, even, you know, running for city council is very different than running for another office, you know, and people are trying to figure out what sticks, you know, like, how do we talk about ranked choice voting? Like, what's your thoughts on this language? What about those ideas? Like, it's all, we're all trying to like our best to like support each other in trying to like make the arguments that we want to make. And that is that like, we're trying to push for something that is, is real and actually, you know, brings democracy to our economy, you know, and actually, you know, is, is democratic socialism, you know, and not just this, you know, let's placate a system that exploits people. Let's actually change that system. So we've been, you know, just really focused on trying to like get people help and advice and like pump people up if they had a tough day and like, trying to have this own communication with everyone on a WhatsApp group. It's been great, uh, you know, and, you know, just kind of just um, keep doing what we're doing. And I think that, you know, having that infrastructure has been really helpful to me and I've, I've definitely brought it into my work and I think I've, I've done a better job as a result of it. And perhaps the, the, the best known member of the DSA for the city slate is Tiffany Caban, who's running for a seat in Astoria, Queens. And of course, she got a lot of people excited in 2019 when she uh, uh, ran for district attorney in Queens and, and lost by 55 votes out of more than 90,000 votes. Uh, such a near miss there in 2019, and now she's running again. Uh, have uh, you and her had many conversations? How, um, you know, what, what kind of what what is, what is she bringing to the table as somebody who's already well known uh, as a decarceral uh, advocate? Yeah, I mean, we've talked a little bit. I mean, it's still it's kind of early. We're in kind of that sprint mode of questionnaires and just trying to make sure we all get the questionnaires done in time. And, you know, um, it's, it's it's very hectic. But, like, we've talked a little bit. But, like, I um how to talk about these things because she's been talking about it for so long. And she, like, talked about it through an entire borough, you know. And um, that's, you know, I've, I've take, gotten a lot from Divinity just in terms of, like, 
talking about the whole carceral system, not just policing and just like trying to frame it around all the things that are part of it, not just the singular issue. So that's something that I've kind of brought, I would try to bring into my own messaging when I talk about it. Um, and I know every, you know, Tiffany and also other folks in the slate, you know, they've asked me questions about the budget process because it's so opaque. I mean, council members don't even understand how the process works. <laughs> so uh, being an analyst on that experience, I'd be like, yeah, well, this is actually how budget negotiating team works out. Like this is how delegation, uh, you know, negotiations uh, come down, you know, and this is what the speaker does and this is what the speaker doesn't do. And that's just because I was there, you know, yep. so I'm trying to like, you know, demystify this so that we can like, take, you know, bring power in and take it back. That's great. And, and speaking of budget processes, of course, the, the state of New York will be uh, uh, formulating a budget in the coming months that uh, should cu- culminate by the end of March and, and, how that process works out will go a long ways to determining whether New York City's uh, budget deficit will uh, grow or shrink and, and whether those uh, savings that you're envisioning from cutting the police department budget could actually be applied to, you know, some exciting new programs or whether it would just go back into the, you know, uh, the general fund to try to uh, you know, sort of bind up uh, the uh, a budget deficit. So can you talk a little bit about, about that and, and, um, the, the, the really urgent need to increase taxes here in New York state on the wealthiest residents. Totally. This is like, this is the, you know, the act three climax of, you know, the future, like this is important right now and everyone should really have an all hands on deck approach to this because this is a lot of this is a state issue. There's I think 14 bills that are being considered that are part of like the tax to risk coalition and most of that is like uh, taxing millionaires and ultra millionaires. I know that the Predator is also part of it because we didn't get that um, in the last uh, push. And I know there's like a, a stock transfer tax, which actually I think is a pretty large um, you know, component and getting rid of 421A. And these are things that like, we need billions of dollars to fill the gap. And we just haven't taxed uh, you know, millionaires and the wealthy for generations, for decades. And this is, we're now reaping this reality of that. So I think it's this is incredibly important and we're not like the city can't compensate for this not happening. Like there's just not enough money in the budget. There's not enough revenue that we can like build. We just have to borrow a lot. And there's a real uh, reluctance to borrow at a high level because we don't want to almost get bankrupt like the last time we did. Uh, the city almost became bankrupt. So, so this is important. Like we, like this, you know, we won't be able to, um, you know, create the services you want if we don't fill this gap with uh, this revenue. So I think, you know, what's done in the next upcoming cycle and the grassroots work of calling people and following up with people and making sure that we, you know, tax the rich and um, stop subsidies for real estate billionaires um, and get all these bills passed, I think is critical. This is super critical. Right. And and we have just a couple more minutes and I want to check in with you on a couple other topics. Uh, You're the son of two public school teachers, and I was wondering what your thoughts were are on keeping schools open as infection rates, uh, COVID infection rates continue to climb. And, and now we have a new, uh, more transmissible variant of the coronavirus also apparently spreading. Uh, your thoughts about how how the school should proceed? Yeah, totally. It's, it's, it's tricky because I think a lot of times, especially in these like progressive districts, quote unquote, um, people are just kind of like, oh, all the candidates are the same. And I think you know, that some folks are on the like keep open school, keep the schools open no matter what, you know, bandwagon. And it's, it's, I personally, I think it's like somewhat racist in some of the, the way they're framing that these issues, but also it's incredibly dangerous. And I think 
that, you know, we've just seen a couple of schools get shut down in Park Slope um, because of, you know, outbreaks. I think, you know, there's no good situation where there's no win-win, you know, keeping schools closed, keeping schools open are, are dangerous. But one, like, could deeply impact people, particularly people who are mar more marginalized by having them uh, catch the, you know, uh, you know, COVID. And, you know, we can't go with that option. I think what we need to do is um, protect teachers, protect the students, uh, keep the schools closed for a little bit longer, but then also like completely frame every type of resource that we're going to try and mitigate this like this dilemma on most students of most needs. So that's students with IEPs, that's um, you know English language learners. You know these are the folks that are already behind and going to be more behind. And if we just focus on trying to deal with these students, um, because a lot of a lot of you know parents and families, they're going to do pods, they're going to get tutors, they're going to do other things like you know, we just need to focus on who needs it most. And I think if, you know, we do that, we'll have a better system. All righty. Well, we'll have to leave it there for tonight. Uh, Brandon West, a city council candidate in District 39 in, in South Brooklyn, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI 99.5 FM. Thank you so much. All righty. All right. Well, that just about wraps it up for tonight's show. Many thanks to Amir Gagarian for her help uh, with tonight's show. And please, once again, remember to give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this on the air. You can give at 516-620-3602 or go straight to give to WBAI.org. You can make a one-time donation or become a WBAI buddy for $10 per month or more, and you'll help keep shows like this on the air. We'll be back same time next week. Lifestyle crews are blue behind my waters. No welfare supporters. More conscious of the way we raise our daughters. Days are shorter, nights are colder. Feeling like life is over. These snakes strike like a cobra. The world's hot, my son got knocked. Evidently, it's elementary. They want us all gone eventually. Trooping out of state for a plate. Knowledge, if coke was cooked without the garbage, we'd all have the top dollars. Imagine everybody flashing, fashion, designer clothes. Lacing your click up with diamond rolls. Your people's holding dough, no parole, no rubbers. Going for imagine law with no undercovers. Just some thoughts for the mind. I take a glimpse into time, watch the blimp read, the world is mine. And I rule the world. Imagine that. Imagine that.